the enemies of Jesus had now realized that what they had been doing was not working. They needed to do something different. And, and their attempts to match wits with Jesus or to trap him with their questions had always ended the same way in failure. And so now in desperation, they are going to resort to the only way they felt they could stop his growing influence, and that was to kill him. This is not the first time in Mark's account that that idea has been floated. As far back as chapter 3, there were conversations about how to destroy him. And now in chapter 14, verse 1, the latter part of the verse says, The chief priest and the scribes sought how they may take him, might take him by trickery and put him to death. They would not attempt to discredit him anymore. They just wanted to kill him. But they faced a problem even in this determination, and that was that it was nearly time for the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, which is also generally called Passover. The, the Passover meal preceded the actual Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they were often connected together. The historian Josephus says, and I don't know that we can rely on this, but he claimed that as many as three million Jews would come into Jerusalem for this particular celebration. Even if you take a third of that, a million is certainly a large number of people. And the, the Jewish leadership recognized that, that the city was going to be crowded with people who had heard Jesus teach. Some had seen his miracles performed. Others were curious about him, hoping him to be the Messiah. And to seize him openly could conceivably touch off a riot. Because verse 2 says, They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. They could see this backfiring and the people then turning on them. And so they are going to have to find some clandestine way to get Jesus, to some, some out-of-the-crowd way to trap him. They'll, of course, find that. Chapter 14 begins, at least in the early verses, recording two very contrasting scenes. We could spend all our time on, on these. Uh, then he moves on in the second and latter part of the chapter to talk about various things like the institution of the Lord's Supper and uh, Gethsemane and uh, the betrayal, of course. Uh, so, so we're going to see several different things before we finish the chapter. We've only got 72 verses to cover. And so 
I, I know I'm not going to say some things I should say, and I apologize for that. Probably never should have tried to compress this into 12 classes. If this were Sunday morning, it'd be 13. But because it's Wednesday night, it's only 12. Let me just mention this. It's not on your outline. Parallel accounts. If you basically want to sort of match this up from chapter 14, you look at Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And then strangely, in John, there is some parallel, but it's chapter 13, but also one part in chapter 12. John did not write chronologically, and so we'll, we'll talk about that. In fact, we're gonna, if I get to it, Mark is going to show us that he did not always write chronologically. So let's start with that first uh, scene, which is an act of love. And that's found in verses 3 through 9. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard, then she, a woman came having a very, very costly uh, container. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted, for it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus has gone back to Bethany, close to Jerusalem, remember. And this is the fourth time that the name Bethany appears in Mark's account. Jesus was evidently a frequent visitor to this uh, small village. But this time he's not at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He is at the home of a man named Simon. And perhaps, uh, we don't know for sure, perhaps he kept the name Simon the leper. And I think the general consensus is that he was formally a leper that not con at that moment a leper, but one who had been healed of leprosy, and yet he perhaps there are a number of Simons, and maybe to distinguish himself, he retained that particular uh, designation. It's meal time, and a woman, according to Mark, but Mary, according to John's account, John names her. Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus, approached Jesus with a flask of perfumed oil. Spikenard is what the New King James uses. Uh, I think maybe some of the older versions or other versions use different terminology, but and we don't know exactly the composure of this, but we do understand 
that it was some kind of costly perfumed oil. And she used that. The, the alabaster uh, flask would have had a narrow neck and it could be broken. And when it was broken, incidentally, something to think about, once it was broken, it had to be used. You couldn't just leave it open. If, if you've ever had a jar of, uh, I mean, a bottle of perfume or a bottle of cologne or something, you leave the top off and it's going to eventually go bad or disappear. But she comes and she anoints Jesus. Now, Mark uh, mentions this as pouring it on his head. In, in the parallel accounts, we see that Jesus that it's actually more than that. But it, the idea is to pour it over so that more can be used in other places. Even his feet were anointed. And uh, this is the kind of thing that you would do in anointing a king or anointing a, a new high priest. Uh, what, what's interesting about this, and, and we don't really have the time to discuss this, but i got to do it anyway. What one wonders is, what did Mary know? Some would speculate this is just a loving act and she didn't have any idea what she was doing as far as anointing Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in her defense, verse 8, she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And so it was it just an accident that she did something for Jesus that would be considered anointing him for burial. Or, as some have suggested, maybe she knew from what Jesus had said that the time of his death was near. One commentator said this, and, and I like it, Mary was the best listener Jesus ever had. She really wanted to know what the Lord taught. And He taught her. And so in, in that teaching, is it possible that she understood His death was coming better even than His own disciples understood it? Anyway, it's something to think about, an, an interesting idea. The act, of course, was immediately criticized. Um, Mark says some who were indignant among themselves. John's account tells us who led that indignation. It was Judas. And in chapter 12 and verse 5 of John, he tells us uh, not only that he led it and what his criticism was, could not this have been sold uh, for a, a, a 300 denarii, a denarii, generally was considered about a day's wages. And so the, the calculation of Judas is, look, this is a year, almost a year's salary for somebody, and it could have been sold and given to the poor. But in verse 6 of John 12, John says, that's all baloney. He was a liar, he was a thief, and all he really wanted perhaps was to be able to sell that himself or to get the money from the sale and steal it because he stole money from the common bag or purse that the disciples had. But, incidentally, we also find from the parallel accounts that Judas wasn't the only one. Others joined in uh, this. Not just him. They were all critical of her. I, I, I wonder about this. You know, it says... Uh, 
verse 4, they were indignant among themselves. This is how sometimes criticism starts. People just kind of begin talking to each other. But then Jesus says in verse 6, no, verse 5, it says, they criticized her sharply, strongly. Then Jesus said, let her alone. Maybe this had now developed into the point that they were actually saying to her, why did you do this stupid thing? Why did you waste all this precious ointment? And Jesus says, leave her alone. She has done what she could. Incidentally, that's a challenge for every Christian today, isn't it? Do what you can. You know, there are always people that are, they've got pretty good ideas of what we can do, you know, somebody else can do. This is what you ought to do. This is what you ought to do. Preachers sometimes are the worst about that. But the truth is, we do what we can do. And, and, and when we do what we can do, the Lord is going to be satisfied with that. We're not expected to do more than we can do. We don't want to do less than we can do, but we just need to do what we can do. She has done, he said, what she could. And then Jesus says that comment that you've heard so many times. Wherever this gospel is preached, people will talk about her. And in Rosenberg, Texas, in November of 2018, we're still doing it. What a tribute. The sad thing is, this is immediately followed by an act of betrayal. Verses 10 and 11, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might, notice this, conveniently betray him. How it might be easy, an easy way to betray him. Um, Incidentally, according uh, to uh, the parallel again, Matthew's account, uh, Judas initiated the meeting. Nobody asked him to come. He initiated it and he made a proposal to them and they accepted it. They evidently bargained for the money and agreed to a set amount of money. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And incidentally, look at Matthew 26 for just a moment. Matthew 26, can't do this much because of time. Verse 15, and he said to them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. For some reason, Commentators, even scholars of some degree, have tried to excuse Judas in various ways. They have uh, tried to believe, perhaps, that all he was really doing, he, he didn't realize Jesus was going to be killed, but he was not happy that Jesus wasn't pressing to establish his kingdom. And incidentally, in Judas's mind, even if that were true, it likely would have been a physical kingdom. But because he wasn't pressing that, Judas is just going to help. That is, to get Jesus to go openly say what he's doing. I, there's no validity in that. And, and incidentally, Judas is never excused in the Bible. In fact, Jesus pronounces woe on the one who would uh, betray him. 
it, it's just not possible. The actual betrayal occurs later in the chapter, but let's move over there to verse 43 just to pick it up because this is his intention. And I, I don't hope this is not confusing. Immediately, Jesus is going to be in the garden, but, but immediately in the garden, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, notice it, with a great multitude with swords and clubs. Boy, you really got to go after that Jesus with swords. Came from the chief priest and the scribes. Notice they had hired them, no doubt, and the elders. And Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Normally a kiss would have indicated affection. And, and, and Asian people would have done what we see European people often do, and that is to kiss each other's cheeks. Um, there is an indication from the word, and I don't know if it's here in Mark's account, but an indication that he maybe kissed him repeatedly or strongly. Here it was only identification, had nothing to do with concern. And so Jesus is betrayed. In verses, we'll go back now to verses 12 through 26, and here is the institution of the Lord's Supper. It was on the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb. The disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him wherever he goes uh, in. Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? With my disciples, then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went out, came into the city, found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve, uh, and uh, then he's going to uh, say to them in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it's written of him, but woe to that man, notice, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, it was necessary to prepare the Passover meal. Uh, now, I, I believe 
I believe, I believe. Let's see what I believe. I believe... Uh, John is going to record this in chapter 13 of his account. And uh, Mark... Mark gives the second most details, I think. Uh, Matthew gives the most, I think. Uh, Mark gives second most, and then Luke gives third. Uh, John John moves sort of in a little different direction because remember he he talks about the washing of the feet and so on. The others don't record that necessarily. The disciples, two of them, were given instruction. Luke tells us those two were Peter and John. Mark doesn't specify them, but but Luke does. And and when he gives them these instructions, you note this. He he is very specific, and only foreknowledge could have known that. When you see a man with a water pitcher, follow him, and then tell the the master of that servant's house, the Lord wants to celebrate the Passover. Where is it going to be? And the man will show you a room, and it'll be prepared. And it was. As they come together, then Jesus announced the coming betrayal in verse 18. And the apostles in verse 19 are obviously concerned, which incidentally, I I guess you can look at this either way you want. Some probably have been critical of them saying, is it me, is it me? In another way, I think you can give them credit for the fact that they were concerned enough that they did not want to be the one who was going to betray Jesus. The Lord responded, of course, verses 20 and 21. Look at Matthew 26, if you will, again. Matthew tells us a little bit more than Mark does. Matthew 26 and verse 25. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. You have said it. The other accounts put more emphasis on it's the one who eats from the sop with me, sopping the bread. uh, But but here in Matthew it is clearly stated. John 13 is also a good place to read about that. In verses 22 through 25, the symbols of the Lord's Supper are used, and those would be unleavened bread. Instantly, the bread had to be unleavened during this time. Could not have been bread with yeast in it because that was forbidden of the Jews. So unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. And uh, those represented his body. The bread represented his body. And the wine or the fruit of the vine represented his blood. Um there is no there is no reason that uh, the Catholic Church could be correct in saying that in the taking of the communion, the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus and the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. That's not true. In fact, Jesus is standing there with these men and saying, this is my body. They knew they weren't eating his body. This is my blood. They knew they were not drinking his blood. That was representative. Uh, And so, incidentally, this memorial feast 
would be celebrated only in the kingdom. I'll drink it new with you in the kingdom. It's not a non-kingdom thing. It is in the kingdom. In verses 27 through 31, we see the sad details of uh, what starts Peter off when uh, Jesus has said in verse 27, all of you, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written. Jesus said this has to be because prophetically Zechariah wrote this by the Spirit. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, now this is no longer Zechariah, this is Jesus speaking, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So not only is Jesus telling them I'm going to be killed, but he's also giving them the assurance, I'm not going to stay dead, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. But here's Peter, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I, I won't do it. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Incidentally, if you are one of those people, we don't have time to go into this, uh, about some who think there's a contradiction about the rooster crowing. If you think that a rooster only crows at in the morning, you need to live where we live. Because I guarantee you there's one in our neighborhood and he crows all the time. Uh, but but into commentaries usually specify this Judean kind of practice. Now notice in verse 20, 31, Peter says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But notice, and they all said likewise. Everybody jumps on. Yeah, Peter, we're not none of us are going to deny you. Um, he was insistent, of course, that he wouldn't do it. He was bold, but he was wrong. In verses 32 through 52, we have the events of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And there is today no absolute designation of where Gethsemane is. You know, if you ever go to the Bible lands, you're going to be shown a lot of possibilities. And here's this, and or it could be this, or here's this, or it could be this. We're not exactly certain about Gethsemane. It, it is no, no longer understood. Jesus, according to verse 32, wanted a place to pray. He knows what's coming, and he knows he needs to be in contact with the Father. And so he seeks that place. He takes three disciples with him. And during this time, he is troubled, according to Mark, and deeply distressed. You know, when you come to Gethsemane, we need to approach it with a reverence uh, that is real. Because what we're seeing in Gethsemane is, in some ways, the real battle. Raymond Kelsey was an excellent Bible teacher, one that I respected greatly. And Brother Kelsey used to tell his students the real battle was won in Gethsemane. And I, I could understand that. The battle was won in Gethsemane. And you know why. Because Jesus is saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
but not as I will, but as you will. And when he left Gethsemane, he knew what he was going to do. There was no doubt about it. The Father couldn't take away what had to happen. And Jesus was committed to it. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the death on the cross was not a challenge or painful or anything else. But I'm saying that Gethsemane was seemingly the crux. Here it is. The commitment has been made. What is sad, of course, and incidentally in verse 34, notice, very interesting statement. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I am so distressed, I feel like I'm dying. It's like death. And then Jesus only asked them, stay here and watch. I don't think he meant watch for criminals or marauders or anything. I think he means you be praying too. But when he comes back after he has prayed, and prayed earnestly and seriously, verse 37 says he found them sleeping. And it's interesting that there were three disciples with him, but Jesus says to Peter, the bold one, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Couldn't you just stay awake and be with me and pray and and, and, and be concerned? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you ever think about this? Could Peter have avoided the terrible mistake he made if he had been praying in the garden. If he had been asking God, I, I, know I, made a, I know I made a bold claim, please help me not to violate what I said. Verse 39, again he went away and prayed, spoke the same words. When he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When when Jesus is delivered to the Jewish official, verses 53 through 65. It's it's clear that the Jews were going to make certain that Jesus could be charged somehow. Uh, They they bring him to the high priest. And if you've studied this before or talked about it, you know there's like about three Jewish, and you hate to call them trials because they really weren't, and three Roman adventures. So about six different movements here at the end of the Lord's life. They, they take Jesus to the high priest, Caiaphas. Incidentally, C-A-I-A-P-H-A-S. It's like K, Caiaphas. And what's interesting about Caiaphas is that uh, he's a puppet, <laughs> He's a puppet. Annas is the real high priest, but they're calling Caiaphas because uh, Annas has been really technically removed. 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Look at, look at chapter 26 of Matthew. Incidentally, Mark doesn't tell us that it's Caiaphas, but chapter 26 and verse 57 says, And those who, led, who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were ascended. They assembled. They're already there, waiting. And uh, they're going to make sure that they try to find some way now to finally cement this particular thing. Verse 60 says the high priest stood in the midst of all of these important Jews and asked Jesus, saying, after all these accusations have been made, do you answer nothing? What is, what is it these men testify against you? And Jesus would not answer. Answered nothing, verse 61 says. High priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And then Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. High priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? What they have now said in their minds is, This is blasphemy. Are you the Son of God? Yes, I am. That's blasphemy, they said. Verse 64, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Well, we're going to see in the next study that they wanted, of course, to kill Jesus, but they couldn't do it because Roman law forbade them from carrying out executions. Now, what's interesting about that is it didn't stop them from killing Stephen. And they tried on more than one occasion to kill Jesus and would have if they could have. But they, they want to get this done legally so that they can say the Romans did it. We didn't do it. The Romans did it. Incidentally, wasn't it interesting that just a few years ago, Jews became highly offended when the Catholic Pope accused the Jews of killing Jesus. They were offended by that. Obviously, they were responsible for Jesus' death. In verses 66 uh, through 72, the rest of the chapter, we see Peter's loyalty being tested. We're going to skip over some of the things that are here, but in verse 66, he's in the courtyard. We're told that he followed at a distance. He wasn't he wanted to sort of stay aloof a little bit. One of the servant girls came, and when she saw Peter, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus. He denied it. I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. Servant girl saw him again and began to say to others who stood by, This is one of them. But he had denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Evidently, Galileans talked in such a way that it was distinguishable from other Jewish areas. 
Yeah, ever hear somebody say, you must be from South Carolina, because that's how you talk. <laughs> he began in verse 71 to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And here then is the final sadness. Not only, I don't know what you're talking about, now I'm not one of them, but then... He's pressed to get to this point. I don't know him. I don't even know him. Second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. One of the saddest verses, I think. And when he thought about it, he wept. Matthew 26.75 says he wept bitterly. These were bitter tears because he realized what a terrible mistake he had made in denying his Lord. Got a couple of minutes uh, before the others come in. If you want to ask something or say something, it uh, be a good opportunity for you to do it. But let me just mention this because I didn't, didn't go into it, I talked about Mark sort of uh, uh, going back, uh, much like John does. In John's account, he tells us that it was six days before the Passover that uh, Jesus was at Simon's house. And uh, so that would mean that Mark is sort of got a... Mark's got to go back uh, to an, a little bit earlier time to record what he does uh, about being there uh, uh, at, at, uh, at the house in Bethany. Okay. Yes, Dan. Right. That was his human side. But on the other side, he knew he was going home yeah. to his eternal home where he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Yeah. And he put, he, you can see his humanity knowing how horrible what was going to happen to every detail. Exactly right. Some would somewhat discredit Jesus by saying that he, he shouldn't have even said he didn't want to die. We look at that and we say, well, it would be a dumb thing if he wanted to die. He didn't want to die, but he knew he had to die in order to accomplish the Father's will. The other part of it is some say, well, look, uh, how could Jesus be equal with the Father? Well, Philippians 2, he emptied himself. This is a part of the emptying, not my will, but your will be done. He tells his disciples on a number of occasions during his ministry, I have come to do the Father's will. Obviously it was his will too, 
but there needed to be a sign of submission on the part of Jesus to heaven's will. And he's attributing that will to the Father. Anybody else? Okay, yes. Go ahead, Sharon. You got four seconds. Well, they all wound up at, at the place and celebrated it together. So it wasn't a mystery. If, if, there's some, if there is some mystery, remember John's account tells us that Judas leaves. He leaves before Jesus goes to the garden. How did he know to go to the garden with the mob? He may have asked one of the other disciples, where, where did... Peter and John and Jesus go. Peter, James, John, Jesus. Where'd they go? To the garden. That's where we're going to find him. 